Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie. Welcome to the Mag Culture Podcast. For this 35th episode, we meet the team behind indie favourite MacGuffin, find out why Park Communications have published a book about sustainable print production, and hear an excerpt from a fascinating recent shop event featuring Jonathan Simons from Analog C Review. But first, an update on what's been happening here at Mag Culture and elsewhere in the world of magazines. Recent arrivals here at the shop include a brilliant designed edition of Backstage Talks, the design magazine about how design can be both useful and beautiful. This issue has been designed by US editorial star Chloe Sheffy, and it is indeed useful and beautiful. Other exciting arrivals include another edition of Printing Fashion, the magazine spun out of the annual Paris Publishing Symposium of the same name. Although revolving around fashion, there's plenty here to interest anyone interested in the broader world of publishing. The issue concerns transformation, with the reinvention of Vogue the most direct of a series of discussions about reinventing magazines. There's also a lengthy interview with New York photography critic Vince Aletti, which is well worth the read as he discusses the changing reference points to find the best photography. Another pleasing return is Vestoy, the magazine that analyses fashion in writing. This 11th issue concerns the everyday, from denim jeans to lost items of clothing found in the street. I particularly enjoyed a piece about the meaning of black clothes by Erin Dorfman. Meanwhile, in terms of new launches, I must mention new Welsh magazine, The Paper, a crazily funny evocation of the sense of locality. Magazines create their own worlds, and the three people behind this have created one strange old world. The effort that's gone into this 126-page large format launch is proof that if you do something well enough, you can make people believe. More, please. And a special mention to Pact, a new wedding magazine that made my colleague Danielle exclaim, I just got sucked into a wedding magazine. How? Well, as she added in her online review, this is a wedding magazine like no other. Meeting at the intersections of weddings, art, design and creative living, this is a nuptials magazine for the creatives out there. Plus, representation is diverse here. Queer weddings and POC couples abound. Elsewhere, after skipping an issue, we hear Fantastic Man is undergoing a complete transformation. Look out for the next issue, early autumn. I really admire the team there for being so willing to regularly re-examine the very heart of what their magazine is. Now, if you're enjoying this podcast, you'll love the Print is Dead podcast too. I hope you already know it, but if not, there have been 20 episodes, each one a long-form interview with a magazine luminary. Being US-based, these tend to be the great and the good from New York including so far Walter Bernard, Adam Moss and Gail Towie. But they also just did British indie designer Alex Hunting, who you probably know from Kinfolk and Kindling, amongst many other projects. Talking of New York, we're excited to be heading there at the beginning of July for Mag Culture Live, with the main event taking place on Sunday, July the 9th. Check the Mag Culture Journal for tickets and details, but let me tease you with a few names who will be speaking. There's Deborah Bishop from New York Times Kids. Matt Willey and Dan Crow will be introducing the second issue of their uh, annual magazine, Inc. Uh, and the career team will be discussing their recent relaunch. Plus, the aforementioned Chloe Sheffer will be joining us. Take a look at the MagCulture site to get a full sense of the day, which this year takes place at the Wicks Playground. We're very grateful to them and to Ace Hotel New York for their support of MagCulture Live, along with our other partners, Hemlock, Commercial Type, Production Type and Vitsu. I mentioned the courier team. We've been getting back in the event frame of mind with a series of MagCulture Meets events at the shop, and one of these marked the recent relaunch of Courier. Their new biannual format is a brilliant direction. 
And we've also hosted Boys, 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 Chutney, Analog C Review, more of it shortly, Architectural Review, and most recently Neville Brody as his third monograph dropped. You can watch Instagram Live videos of all of these via the journal. I particularly enjoyed the Neville Brody evening. He's always an engaging thinker about design, but it was great to hear him talk so passionately about magazines. One of the themes that developed out of our discussion was the need for friction and the way magazines can offer complex experiences that are the absolute opposite of the flat, frictionless digital world. I highlight this because the same subject came up in our first interview for this episode, featuring Kirsten Algera and Ernst van der Hoven, the founders of MacGuffin. The magazine is an absolute reference point in the indie world and a firm favourite here at MagCulture. Each issue revolves around a single item. The new one is the log and previous issues have included the bed, the window and the bottle. Despite starting out with such prosaic sounding subjects, each issue spins out in multiple directions to mix compelling stories of pop culture, history, sociology and just about anything else that might provide an intriguing angle on the issue's subject. I spoke to Ernst and Kirsten on Zoom as issue 12 of their annual magazine was due in shops. Welcome uh, Ernst and Kirsten, thanks for joining us from Amsterdam. How are you both? Yeah, fine. We're doing fine, yeah. We just launched the log. Thank you for uh, inviting us. No, pleasure. It's been a while since we caught up. So uh, I have to admit, I've actually not seen the new issue, which is um, which is all about the log, right? Yeah, the log. What stage are you at? I mean, it's out in the wild. Have you have you launched it? Has there been a, an official party to launch the the issue? We actually had an official launch um, last week um, on Thursday. Thursday. Yeah, at uh, a bonus suits, which is a hybrid store, maybe more like a gallery, uh, a meeting place, uh, even a library. I think it is, and um, it's here in Amsterdam in the Warmerstraat, and. One of the contributors of the log um, is was was Bonne, who used, who had an aunt. Yeah, maybe it's good to say that that there was a connection with uh, Bonne, who owns this place, which is a store and a gallery where the launch was. Um, he's he's featured in the magazine because his aunt, his great aunt, was Mien Ruis. And she was a famous uh, Dutch landscape architect, and she was the first one to use sleepers, like the railway <coughs> sleepers, in gardens. Um, and so, as a toddler, uh, Bonne, he, he he strolled around these gardens and, and stumbled across the sleepers. And uh, there's a very nice podcast made of this uh, of of his youth in the garden. And uh, so that's um, that's why we we organized it over there. Has there been a good reaction to the issue? Yeah, I. I I think so. I mean, yeah, we, we, we haven't got a lot of reaction because it's not in stores right now yet. So it's it was really a small, uh, small audience that we had. But, uh, what, yeah, they seem to be enthusiastic. So we're happy about that. In, in one sense, it must seem very easy just to come up with another object to deal with and, and address. And But I'm sure it's much harder than it seems to come up with those objects. Do, do, do you have a lot of discussion? I mean, is it easy or hard? How do you decide? Uh, funny enough, not that much of a discussion, but what we always think it's important that, that it is a surprising next object after the first, the, the one that we have made before. And um, if you think about the chain, which is, was more about suppression and about maybe about empowerment, we thought maybe then it would be... Uh, which is, of course, also, also very cultural 
object. We thought maybe then it would be nice to have something that is more sort of grounded and more maybe romantic. And then mm-hmm. uh, the log, you know, which is very re- much related to forests and to maybe also darker sides of of, uh, of objects, then could be an, a, a good sort of counterbalance and um, and and then also maybe something more intriguing after the change. Mm-hmm. More natural. Yeah, more natural, literally more natural, yeah. And, and I, I was looking through, um, I've, got, I've got a little um, row of the magazines here on the shelf as I was reminding myself of the, of, of the subjects that you have done to date or the items that you've done to date. And they, and they always, the, the actual word you choose seems to be very kind of democratic and sort of everyday. And, and, we, and they're talking about the new issue, which is, um, as, as we say, is the log. But it could have been perhaps the tree or or something else. But the log somehow is a very different meaning to the to the tree. Do, do... Well, the tree is, of course, you know, without, um, without felling, Trees no log, so it's very closely um, connected to trees and forests and and a lot of uh, political topics like deforestation and tree trafficking. Um, but the tree in itself is not an object. Mm-hmm. The log is already quite obscure, you know, because it's in, in between timber and a trunk, maybe, and it's it's uh, it's maybe more the promise of an object than an object in itself. Um, but if you think about all wooden objects that um, we lived with from the early days, you know, it's um, before we could could dig stone or or melt iron, we had already trees to uh, to use in our living environment. So I think everything in in the early days was made out of wood. You know, if you think about traveling or or. or or cooking, or or living, uh, making your 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 home, um, hunting. It was all related to wood, mm-hmm. and um, also the big uh, issues are related to wood. If you think about the first ships that that we used for the the colonization of of the world, you know, it was it started with with a trunk, you know, a, a tree trunk. That was sort of. Uh, this also a very sad thing that we found out. You know, it's it's so related to uh, darker stories. Yeah, and maybe it's also. Um, I mean, your question: if it's it's how we choose these objects and why the the, the language of the subjects is so um, specific. Um, it's also because, um, in a way, we always try to have a sort of subdivisions in the subject. So in the magazine, there's always three or more four or five chapters, uh, diving into different parts and aspects and perspectives on this subject. So uh, the log leads to a lot of subdivisions, I think, like trunk and tree and and timber. And um, so I I guess also it has to be a sort of container word that is interesting for us to work with. They are always very ambiguous things, although although they're very mundane and very sort of everyday life. we choose them because of the fact that we could easily find multiple perspectives uh, related to them. So it's it's um, it seems quite sort of simple to to start with a bed, but a, or, or or a window. But we find 
these objects quite intriguing because of of the fact that we could find these um, different angles. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the angles. It's the, it's the. I mean, you mentioned you, you know you like the object itself to be a surprise each time, but then also it's always a surprise what angles you take on the object because it's not. It, it, as I, I find myself constantly explaining to people when I, when I talk about the magazine, it's it's not actually about logs. It's about approaches and cultural meaning and and history and it's just it can be about anything. Yeah, and the funny thing is also after we have made one, we could always always immediately make a shadow issue because there are so many things that uh, while making, you know, we think, oh wow. It's like how the serendipity works, that you, you have a, a, a very certain a specific idea, but on that route, you find sometimes better uh, and more interesting angles um, that, well, in the end, doesn't end up in the, in the magazine, but we could easily uh, make another one, you know. So it's, it's how it works. It's quite contagious to, to work <laughs> on it. <on. laughs> and, 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 and how about, uh, I mean... Uh, have there been some objects you've attempted and realized don't work? Have there been failed objects? Well, we always say the chair would never be an object that we would, because it's so linked maybe also to, to, to consumerism and to the more the big design world. You know, if you go to mm-hmm. the Salone della Mobile in Italy, in, in Milano, it's, it's always the chair, you know, it's always the, maybe the side table and the falls are also there, but it's, it's too obvious for us that it's not an ambigu- ambiguous uh, thing. Maybe the throne would be a better, uh, a better MacGuffin because it's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's more symbolic. We thought about doing something with the lighter ones um, because we thought that's such an inst- interesting instrument because in some parts of the world nobody smokes anymore and other parts of the world cigarettes are super important and are the basis of trade and of human relations and everything. So the lighter might be very interesting for this. And we also plan to do a project in Beirut together with uh, Ibrahim Neme, who's also a magazine maker. And um, and we were supposed to go there um, and look into cigarette trafficking, all sorts of stuff. Um, and then the big explosion came in, in Beirut in August uh, 2020. So, uh, yeah, the lighter, of course, is, uh, is, an, is an object that you can't discuss. At least we thought we can't discuss that anymore in, uh, in this situation. But the funny thing is when we first asked Ibrahim Neymar what would be the MacGuffin of Beirut, within a split second he said, oh, the lighter. <laughs> and, you know, for us, you know, in, 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 in a context where nobody smokes anymore, you know, it's, it's how come? And then he said, well, it's, it's also about hope and there's so much things. That, and it's, all, the, all the, the, the refugees have, have lighters and cigarettes and that's the, the only thing they can trade and they can, can keep, keep hold on to. And we, we understood how, how meaningful that was and how, how much more there is than just the lighter. That, that it's also the hope that it's, it symbolizes and the stories that it holds. And, and it's the start of so many things, isn't it? It starts, yeah. it, it, it creates exactly. things, it creates fire. Yeah, it creates fire and it's like, it's a protest maybe as well. And um, there's so much to say about it. It would be a very interesting MacGuffin, I think. It's very mobile. You can just yes, you yes, always have discreet. a picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a sort of social instrument, like, do you have a light? Yeah. Um, can you give a start me a of a conversation always, yeah. yeah. Just, and just going back to the log, is, is there an actual kind of definition of, of when 
a a stick becomes a lob? <laughs> no, I think it's a very good question because uh, that was actually a discussion that we had a lot because a stick is a beautiful MacGuffin in itself. And um, and so, so where does it stop being a log and starts to be something else? And uh, I think we didn't solve that. And there are a lot of objects that are, I think, quite, um, yeah, there, you could always debate whether it is a real log. But uh, for instance, the canoe is not in it, but more or less made out of a log. You know, it's like a bowl or a spoon it could also be a log. But there are MacGuffins in it in themselves, and I think the stick uh, we have, I think we have ch- sticks in it, we, um, stick charts that are a navigation system. Of course, uh, you could discuss whether it's it's a log, but yet again, we found it's log worthy. <laughs> <laughs> so the the one part of the magazine I have seen is the front cover, which is which I love, which is a fantastic mix. So, I mean, uh, for those maybe you haven't seen it yet it's it's a well arguably i mean is is that a log on it's the literally a log i it's think a it's, a, it's log. a huge log and yeah. it's 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 a felt tree um that frank bruggeman a dutch artist botanist uh rescued uh in the streets in rotterdam where uh i think different uh, than in amsterdam where all the felt trees are taken care of and reused in Rotterdam. I think there is not no such things. But he was working on an exhibition um, in an art space in Rotterdam called Brutus, and he wanted to make a statement about all these giant tree, urban trees that are felled and um, just end up as sort of pulp. You know, there's mm-hmm. you could do so many good things. Uh, Sustainable. You can make fantastic sustainable things. You could even do all the 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 urban furniture could be made out of these trees. You know, as a sort of honor of, of respect for that organism. But um, and then he found a big willow, a, a weeping willow. And the funny thing, but also the 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 I think maybe the biggest gift of it is that a willow, when you cut it, there's so much vitality still in it that it kept growing. So in the exhibition, it starts to grow back again. You know, it gets twigs and it gets leaves again. So because there's so much vitality in that um, in that log, that it also became a sort of an uh, an ultimate sort of symbol of resistance. We've we've got on the, on the inside of the flap of the of the magazine. There's a picture of it, uh, this willows that with with the little. Um, new sprouts that are coming out. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's really lovely new life in a way. It's, 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 it's also on the cover. It's, it's sat on a wooden pallet. Yes, because that is how it was transported to the exhibition hall. And uh, funny enough, we we love that pallet, and we we think that is part of sort of the industrial look, and also mm-hmm. it makes it more like a. It, it stages is more like a thing, but Frank, we had a discussion. He said, "Well, I would love to have a better picture because." Then now it's 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 a, it's a piece of art, so in his opinion, he thought it would be better to have it without that palette, whereas we thought, well, it is part of the story and it's the the, the whole transport. It's it's and the, and the palette in itself is also a beautiful sort of uh, almost a lock in itself. You know, if you think about what role palettes have in transport in the world of industrial transportation, it's it's a it's a great sort of object. 
in my introduction, I've, I've, I gave a very quick kind of uh, pricey of, of, of how MacGuffin works and the idea behind it. I just wondered if you could give a very quick idea to the person that hasn't read the magazine, what MacGuffin is and how, you know, we've talked about the, the objects, but then how do you use those objects to travel? I think uh, I think the subtitle of the magazine is a, is a good, yeah, gives a good idea of what the magazine is about, the life of things. Um, and that is exactly how we started. Is um, I think it was in 2014 that we worked together, Ernst and I, on a couple of projects. Uh, and one of them was um, an installation with textiles that were woven by women in the north of Vietnam. Um, and they were women in a sort of women collective. Uh, they were victims of uh, women trafficking on the border of North Vietnam and China. And we talked a lot with them and, and we slept there and we discussed a lot uh, with each other that um, it was so um, nice to get a sort of total non-Eurocentric perspective on design and on crafts. And um, and it opened our eyes in a way because we worked both in the design world and um, and we were a bit inspired by that or uninspired by this design world that is all about innovation and new stuff and new vases and new chairs, etc., so uh, we thought, can we make a platform that really focuses on the context and the use of things instead of um, new stuff? Uh, and also try to yeah, give a voice to these objects um, and look at the world through the eyes um, of an object. So that's, that's how we started, to, with the idea that we maybe could stretch the design of the de- definition of design um, a bit. And um, yeah, that's that's how we started it, and uh, that was um, it. Started with the title, actually, MacGuffin. We all understand that reference to. Uh, I mean, my reference to, to it is, is the Hitchcock movies from the sixties and seventies. Um, I'm not sure that's the original definition of what a MacGuffin is, but that, that's that's my my link to understanding it. Do people generally understand that link? Mm, I don't know. I think a lot of people, of course, know Hitchcock. But even if you know Hitchcock, you probably don't know what a MacGuffin is exactly. Um, But um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that people don't understand it. I mean, it's got a subtitle uh, and it's got an object as a theme, every issue. So that's pretty clear. And I think the confusion about MacGuffin maybe is what we also won it from the start, in a way. We like confusion. I mean, it doesn't have to be uh, the design world or of objects or, um, you know, so, yeah, I don't think... And MacGuffin is explained very well by Mr. Hitchcock himself and that you can find it on the internet, you know, there's fantastic yes. uh, features yes. of him explaining what a MacGuffin is, yeah. which is hilarious in itself. Yes, yeah, so we always... Clips. Yeah. Maybe we simplify it a bit, but we always say like it's a MacGuffin is the object that sets the story in motion. And um, yeah, so that's what we wanted to mm-hmm. discuss in a magazine. I want to pick up what you're saying about not worrying about confusing people, because I think that's a really, it's, it's something that I come up again and again at recently when I'm talking about magazines and the way people make them and the way, the, what people, the reaction that people desire from the readers in terms of understanding and appreciating them. And, and I think so much activity and creative work now is is sort of gets pushed along this idea of having to be frictionless and having to be really easy and transparent. And it's, it's sort of almost applying a sort of a, 
a digital internet approach to 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 making stuff so it's easy to use and it's easy to access and it's no trouble but actually the bit of trouble and a bit of complexity is is useful isn't it it's a positive yeah well we th- we think so i mean and that's also the way how we work i mean it's really of course we've got a pretty straightforward format i think i mean it's a magazine it's got a number of pages it's got chapters it's got an editorial in the beginning and an appendix in the back, you know. But um, in between those pages, we can do as many detours, I think, as we want to. And um, sometimes that's even confusing for ourselves as well, like Ernst just said, because you start with a subject and then all of a sudden you're somewhere in a completely different uh, environment and and that can be so interesting. And I, I think for us, that's the way we make the magazines by surprising us ourselves also all the time and and not following the straight lines and 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 I guess that's also the reason that we don't make a website or we do have a website of course but we're not a digital magazine because we we like all those layers and all those surprises and going from one uh sub theme to the other and and what I think is also interesting that um if a magazine is finished you can always um, see all the red threads that are um, in it, you know, and that maybe you don't notice when you're working on it, but in hindsight you think, oh, that's that's funny because that's really connected to the first story in the magazine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it grows naturally. It's quite organic how how the research works. Also, you talked about the structure of the magazine there, Kirsten, but. Um a very clear part of, of, of MacGuffin as a publication, as an object in its own right, is, is, is both the physical and graphic identity. But it also, everything, it, it, I always have the impression that the page size and the papers have been very, very well considered from the beginning. Did, 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 Ernst, did you do a lot of research in, into the size and the weight of the paper and, and issues like this? We did a lot of research with whom we wanted to work together for the graphic design. So it was very difficult for us to decide with who you make this magazine, you know. it's uh, Because we were, I think, pre-searching before we started the magazine almost a year. Because when we started the magazine, we, we, we were funded by the Creative Industry Fund of the Netherlands. And uh, this gave us time to really dig into the idea that, of, that we had of the magazine, what kind of magazine we wanted to make. So for... Kirsten and I, it was quite clear what kind of magazine it would be, but uh, and we had some notions about what the the, the physical uh, aspects of that magazine. But it was very important that we found somebody who we could work on very close harmony uh, on the yeah on how that uh, would it would take shape, you know, and what what. Um, so we were very happy that that we had some very good first discussions with Sandra Kassenaar and at that time also with Bart de Baats, uh, with whom she works together. And um, she understood quite well, I think, that the physical aspect is very, was very important for us. I, th- I think from the start we, we did a lot of research into this, this physical identity as well. Uh, I mean, not only in the way that we looked at uh, paper, we looked at type faces, we looked at um, uh, different formats, of course. Um, uh, and um, so, for instance, um, the typeface we're working with is uh, from Joseph Churchward. He was a Samoan 
New Zealand type designer who never digitalized his types and made everything by hand. And we thought this 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 craft um, way of working fitted really well with MacGuffin. So that's something that we really looked into. But the other thing we also worked on for a long time is like, how can we make this magazine a sort of object in itself? Uh, so what you can see from the first issue is that uh, that was uh, dedicated to the bed, that we tried to have the magazine look like a bed as well and uh, yeah, to give it this physical quality as an object. Um, so maybe also more or less like a sort of portable exhibition that you can yeah, keep and, and carry with you. Which was very, it was a very strange area when we when we started the magazine in 2015. Um, a lot of magazines went bankrupt in 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 the Netherlands. So when we started the magazine and were pitching it, um, people talked as well. Printed matter in these days, uh, and then we even believed in something very sort of yeah. Very maybe with a countercultural uh, uh, content, but it it should look so nice that people want to, would would like to keep it and to to caress it and and even may you know um, want to maybe uh, have the whole series. So that was also something that we really discussed in in the beginning. And and that that series is really well established now is this is this the 12th issue right yes and recently here in the shop we had we had some back issues came in so we had we, we we had the chain issue 11 and then i think we had um the bottle and we had um i can't remember which the other one was and and for the first time i sort of actually we had them on display with three of them next to each other and i realized what a strong series they are that they're, 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 they're very the, the 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 covers are always quite abstract and the and anyone that's seen an issue will realize that the name of the magazine and everything is all quite low key but there's something very unique about the way the covers they they look like macguffin covers even though perhaps i mean i can't, i can't describe what a macguffin cover is can you describe what a, what a macguffin cover is oh, i i wish we could Jeremy, really, <laughs> because that would make life so much easier i mean it's always the last thing one of the last things that we do um, because of course, also you have to know what's inside, and uh, and I think all three of us, so Sandra, graphic designer, and Ernst and I, we we know exactly what we want, but it's hard to describe to each other. So it's always a question of making lots of covers and then uh, deciding in the end. But yeah, what I mean, we want, of course, a sort of iconic image that in the in the in the in the same time is raising questions or is. Yeah, telling something about the context of what you're looking at. So it has to be a little bit of a story in itself, I think, the cover. Yes. But I think the covers become a little bit bolder than in the beginning. They were quite... Um, yeah, I think there were there was too much things happening in the beginning on the covers. And now we, we really tend to have a very bold statement and uh, rather one big log that... Um, stands there on a pallet and it's really strong than maybe uh, uh, a very complex situation where you have a lot of deforestation or whatever you know it's it's it's, it's really about that one object I think on the covers and just t turning back to the current issue um, as you as you say it's not in shops yet and I, I, I I'm talking blind I haven't seen it could you maybe both offer one story from the issue that you think is is perhaps your favourite or perhaps the most relevant or 
I don't know, the, the one that you would highlight to somebody who's asking about it? Well, I don't have a favorite, really not. But I think what I've, uh, I'm, um, what that's very near to my heart is maybe the, 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 uh, the story about timber floating uh, in Norway, which ended in 1985. And that was um, a very sad thing to, to happen for the, um, the Dutch tree uh, industry because tree floating was very connected also to the, the sewing mills and the, the whole trade of, of timber in Scandinavia. So when I grew up in, in Norway, all the small towns ne- connected to the to the big uh, river, the Gloma, which is almost the, like it's it's the really the, the, the biggest the biggest river in Norway and and was always used for the timber floating. And it was once a year that all the felled tree felled trees that were felled during the winter in the in the spring and in the early summer floated from the north to the south and then came with enormous bundles uh, to the to the south where boys stood with big sort of um, harpoons to keep the keep the, the float in track and it was a very sort of physical and very um, um, almost sensational thing to see it, it, it actually sounds very dangerous it was very dangerous. It was a very. It was. It was. And 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 we looked at it in a sort of a sentiment, but also because of the spectacle was. It was a, a quite a dramatic uh, yeah. uh, thing to happen. But it was very respectful in the sense that the the trees that were felled were all numbered and they were they were all felled for a certain reason. You know, once for for beams or whatever for for paper. It was all. You know, it was very. Secured that a tree that was had a certain measurement ended up with the right reason and had a and and think about how how sustainable it was because there was no transport over 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 roads it was all in that river that that floated anyhow so it was was a was a beautiful and very clean way of transporting and when it ended you know the the, the streets had had to alters to get 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 all these this huge camions over it, and and the, so it became a more mechanic mm-hmm. thing, you know. The, the, and and now, of course, everything is done almost by robots. It's it's uh, uh, it's very sad to see that a big tree now is 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 it's sawn in, in smaller trunks and has no the length doesn't doesn't you know doesn't mean anything anymore. So that's so that's something that I I, I was really really happy to see. Uh, find a booklet about that episode in Norway that ended in in the eighties and um, was very well registered by uh, an artist and, and at that time he was eighteen and worked at a as a timber floating boy in with a, with a crew and he made photos about that and so it's a sort of a homage to that period but it is also um, maybe a, a hope that. We could could reinstall that again. You know, it's it's easy to to use rivers as a natural way of transporting. And Kirsten, oh, it's always really hard to choose one story. But I think um, what I really liked was a story by Elliot Hayworth, and he um, he's a zoologist uh, and a writer, and he wrote a text about wood beetles and the Dutch elm disease and how it was transported around the world. 
Um, and um, it was, of course, a disastrous disease, really, for, for in, in almost every country of the world where elms grow. Um, but it's also really interesting to look at the origins of it because it's uh, very much uh, related to globalism uh, because they transport uh, beetles from one side to the other through pellets. Um, but it's also, of course, very much connected to monoculture, um, which is still a problem in a lot of parts of the world. So I liked it that he started with this little tiny beetle, insect beetle, and then, um, yeah, told uh, a story about how wood is going around the world with all sorts of uh, consequences. Uh, well, thank you. I mean, that, that, both those stories kind of uh, perfectly kind of encapsulate what MacGuffin does so well, and that is take take things in different directions. So that's issue 12. If, if, have, have you got issue 13 in the pipeline already? Or I mean, how, how you've only just done that one. So do you start the next one or is, do you actually get on with the, your real lives and... No, magazine life goes on all the time. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> that's one of the good things about it. So we're already researching a number 13, um, and it will be uh, themed the letter, as in alphabet, uh, typefaces, etc. Um, and we're really in the in the in the first stages of the research, so I can't say too much about it. But it's about lost letters, it's about um, empowerment through letters, it's uh, about different languages, it's about uh, um, yeah, the physical part of uh, letters, it's about hand signs and gestures and, well, lots of things. It's, it's endless in a way. It's so hard to stop with this subject and it's, I think it's going to be one of my favourite Subjects um, and next to it we will do um, sort of workshop in Cairo um, with a lot of um, designers, graphic designers from the region, to look into Arabic street typography, mm-hmm. uh, and we will make a sort of extra publication uh, about that subject and uh, coming from this workshop, um, we do that together with Archiv Cairo um, collective from uh, Egypt. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was I was going to ask. I mean, you know, I was, I was sort of. Um joking there about sort of uh, magazine life versus real life. <laughs> but um, obviously you're involved in many other things beyond the magazine. Can I ask what what you are up to the rest of the time, both of you? Sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a holiday coming up tomorrow. But, but um, um, I started to make apple cider a year back. Uh-huh. So during the launch, we also launched uh, the first batch of blends that we uh, brew. Um, and, um, well, it, it, it might be a new, <laughs> a new road I'm, uh, um, I want to wander, but it's, 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 it's something that I'm uh, very intrigued by that uh, to see how I could do something, um, constructive with all the rotten apples and pears that all the, well, they're not rotten, but, but if you don't, don't do anything, then they, they will fall and, and, um, it becomes sort of um, lame. So I thought, what can I do with all these apples? I'm, I take care of a big orchard, and then it's 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 so sad to see what. <laughs> so then we started to collect these the apples and pears, and I did a course, and I and I met some guys with whom I'm, I'm now making this apple cider, and it's uh, wow, yeah, it's quite quite a, a adventurous thing to do. 
Um, so that's one thing. And, and next to that, I'm also a garden uh, uh, designer. So I'm also working on some uh, gardens at the moment. So, yeah. yeah. And I have to say, we do a lot of uh, extra things on the side with McGuffin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's lectures on workshops, but also we made a podcast with the chain. We're trying to uh, make one for the log and the letter as well. Um, so that's in the pipeline. So there's always it's it really turned into a sort of a small platform. It's uh, not just a magazine uh, anymore, um, which is I think really nice because it, yeah. it all influences each other as well, and it's really interesting to think of exhibitions in the form of a magazine or a magazine in the form of an exhibition. So, yeah, we hope to uh, to to do lots of things on the side as well. And um, and we're teaching, both of us. So, graphic designers I'm teaching. In, in Amsterdam. At, I'm at Rietveld and we, we also um, did um, masterclasses for the ECAL in, in Lausanne. And for the Dutch Design uh, uh, Academy in um, in Eindhoven, so that various that, that's something that we found quite um, um, rewarding is that the McGuffin tend to be a very good uh, research model on academies. So we were quite often asked to introduce the McGuffin for a, a module that they want to. Um, roll out, and then the the, the MacGuffin is, is 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 sort of the kickoff to that uh, research process, um, and it's nice to see that that it's, it's really uh, um, taken serious. That uh, research is a very important part of of the design process, which of course we, we found logic, but. Uh, it doesn't. It, it, it might. There, there might have been a period in, in also in, in academies that that was sort of almost not done. You know, that is sort of you. You, you have to take everything out of yourself. But it's, uh, I'm against, I'm against that. I think there is so much done already, and uh, learn from it, or even copy it. You know, if, if you do it in the right way. I think we've covered what I needed to cover. Just qu- very quickly before we end, is there, was there anything you particularly wanted to include that we didn't get through? Well, you asked, do you, do you have things planned for the next 12 editions? And I, I wanted to say, well, do you want us to have a burnout or something? Oh, yeah. 12, 12 more editions? Yeah, that, that was kind of a deliberately threatening question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, uh, if we, yeah. we will impre- make that. But, uh, I'm impressed you already know what the next one is. So, Yeah, and yeah, yeah. But that's something also that we, 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 we want to, because it needs to uh, get into your head and, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, start ripening there in a way, yeah. That's an interesting point because because you you do, uh, talking about the research side of things, it's not something you can rush, is it? You have to let it bubble along. It needs to be in your head and needs to, you need to have those sudden ideas in the middle of the night. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, you have to read and and look at a lot of things just to to grasp what what the subject exactly is, you know, And, and... what parts are interesting and how it's connected to lots of other things and uh, to, to sort of make a network in your head of um, what this this object is is in. Uh, and to, to all of this is in, are you both still enjoying it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. 
Otherwise, we would have stopped. That's 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 the, the good thing about being an independent magazine. There's there's nobody who who asks you to do it. I mean, uh, of course, you've got an audience who who does, but um, we can, we can always. Uh, we are very happy with our audience as well. You know, we get so much nice reactions, and we really feel that um, um, they they appreciate what we do, and that makes us also very um, yeah feels. Like a gift to... Yeah, that's so nice. And also, uh, we've got an audience that is always very interactive. So we get lots of suggestions and, and people who want to talk about it. And so, yeah, that's, that's really... And the funny thing is when we started the magazine, we thought about... Because that was one of the questions we got a lot when we were pitching the idea of the MacGuffin. Is what, who would, will be, be your audience? And we thought, well... Our friends, you know, people from our age, maybe or whatever. But it's is not the case, you know. It's all a lot of people are much younger than we are, and we feel very, very happy with that idea that we make something also for new generations. You know, that it's not only about uh, old stuff for old people, but also we're also very young, Ernst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> No, but I think that's that's true because in, from the start we we didn't have a clear idea about the audience, and we thought maybe quite arrogantly like uh, this audience will um, be a MacGuffin audience. I mean, it will shape itself, and yeah. and in a way that I did that, yeah, that happened because yeah. at first we thought this is a magazine for people who like design or graphic design, but it's so much broader than that, and also really interesting to yeah have discussions with all these different audiences that are in the McGuffin audience. I think that, that that in the end is my favorite thing about the whole project is, is that it, it is a sort of design project which never really mentions design. No, even, well, it depends a bit on, on what audience you have when you talk about McGuffin, but I introduce it a lot of times as an anti-design um, magazine, um, which it is in a way and it also isn't. I mean, it's a bit more than that. It's not... Uh, Maybe a design magazine anymore. It's it's really uh, the life of things. I think it's more like a compendium of things. You know, it's when we started it. Also, it was I think it was more an antidote to a, menta- a design mentality. So it's not about that we are against design, but this was more against the big portfolio presentations that we normally saw. You know, which, which was quite boring. You know, and the big names and. Uh, um, endless lists of 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 um, almost like the boutique hotel uh, policy behind it. We, mm-hmm. we hated that, and all these anonymous things that were made that we found quite quite um, wonderful and, and didn't had any audience. You know, we thought, well, it would be nice to give them a platform to to give these objects a platform, and maybe also the all the, the forgotten heroes from the sixties and the seventies that. Uh, fun, yeah, remarkable enough, often lived and were almost forgotten, you know, and we thought, well, maybe nice to also get them back on the stage. Yeah, maybe that's also nice to say that we, what we didn't expect from the start or what we didn't think about is that um, by making this magazine and inviting uh, a lot of contributors for every issue, I think more than 40 for, for one issue, um, you create a sort of new network as well. And it's really a good platform for, I think, for talent, uh, whether it's uh, visual talent like photographers or illustrators, but also writers. And 
So that's that's something that is for, for us, I think, really inspiring. That uh, there's a lot of yeah talented people um, working. Because I think that's also part of the physical um, things of the magazine is that it is so diverse. Also in in what kind of formats we include, like uh, there are visual essays, there are short stories, there are interviews, there are um, long reads, short reads, there are a lot of um, f- photographical series. So it's always um, very very rich. In the sense that it's it's it's, it's there's so many ways of of of, of um, framing things that we we would like we, we always try to to find a sort of a um, a strong uh, mixture of presentations so that it's not only just this 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 very sort of blunt. You have images and you have a text, but it's also we play with that a lot. And of course, Sandra Kastner is really important in this because um, she's the one who gets everything together in the graphic design. Well, next time we have a conversation, we'll have to invite Sandra along to join us. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yes, certainly. Yeah. But for now, thank you very much. I, I've I started this conversation really looking forward to seeing the new issue, and I'm more desperate to see it than ever now. So, uh, with a bit of luck, it'll be on sale by the time this this podcast goes out. But listen, thank you, Ernst. Thank you, Kirsten, for joining. Thank you, Jeremy. We'll speak soon. Bye, speak I soon. hope so. Speak soon. Thanks very much to Kirsten and Ernst for talking to me. Uh, I'm still looking forward to seeing issue 12, the log, but also very excited by the prospect of the following issue about the letter. Now, usually about this time in the podcast, we cut to an ad highlighting the support that Printers Park Communications give to this podcast. But we're going one better this episode by welcoming Managing Director Alison Branch to join us. Welcome, Alison. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Uh, and she's going to discuss a recent book about sustainable print production that Park had produced. Um, so thank you for joining us, as I say. But first of all, before we come to the book itself, how are things going at Park? Yeah, I have to say we've had a good uh, five months, Mm -hmm. so really delighted. We're now part of Graphius Group, who are a European company, and that's also bringing a lot of cross-European opportunities. So, yeah, good time. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, Plenty of magazines going through? Uh, Plenty, plenty going through. And, uh, in fact, the the book has actually generated quite a lot of new inquiries, too. Interesting, okay. From publishers and magazines. I bet uh, it has, yes. Well, we'll come to that. Um, But first of all, the book is titled Sustainable Print Design, which tells you a little bit about what it does and and why it exists. But tell us a bit more about, first of all, why you wanted to produce this book. Absolutely. So consumers are increasingly asking um, questions of uh, before they buy. They're asking questions and considering sustainability, which means that brands, publishers are also now starting to think um, in a lot more depth. So we're getting a lot more asked a lot more questions than we have been in the past. And um, we thought it would make lots of sense to pull the guide together. Um, and from, from our part, we've been considered a, a, a very environmentally friendly printer for, for many years. We're carbon neutral and we run with green energy, uh, no waste. 
And uh, a few years ago, we asked, well, what else can we do? And we thought we would like to start educating our customers. So we started to produce content articles. Um, we actually won Environmental Printer of the Year uh, last year on the basis of that. And we thought actually putting it all together into a guide would be the next natural step. Yeah. Of course. And I imagine that going into that, it probably seemed quite a simple project to achieve. But actually, it, it, it seemed it a simple and project. Yeah. Uh, and I, I worked on it with Paul Tomlinson, who manages our marketing, and he and I pulled together the content. And the more we got into it, the more we found that there were more questions that we needed to ask. We needed to ask the paper merchants. We needed to ask the manufacturers of foil. We needed to ask the manufacturers of UV. So... Actually, it took longer to produce than we expected. And, and, and was it a useful process for you and your colleagues it, and the company anyway? It was because anyway? it made us go into much more depth. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, if you're putting it actually in writing, then you, you actually make sure that you've done your research yeah. properly. Yeah, and you test those claims. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you, yeah, and you test those claims. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In some respects, it's self-evident, sustainable print design, but tell us a little bit more about what, that actually is in the book and what it offers? Yeah, so it, we've aimed to provide a comprehensive guide to all the various or the materials, processes, choices that are available to customers to enhance the sustainability of their print production. So there are different sections, there are sections on paper, there are sections on binding, sections on uh, coatings, lamination, um, Different customers have different objectives. Some are aiming to cut carbon. Some of them are aiming to cut plastic. Some of them want to have minimal waste. So there are different sections that answer the questions, mm -hmm. you know, depending on people's targets. We also believe that it will add value to the uh, higher education market. So uh -huh. we're, we're actually contacting the various uh, design courses, university courses, and talking to the libraries who are uh -huh. very interested yeah, yeah, in taking absolutely. the book. Well, in that sense, it's, a very, it's an invaluable resource because, as, as you say, it does offer, um, it answers a lot of people's questions in respect of production, but it also, the, the things that I think I'm right in saying are sort of defined in two ways, one in terms of their environmental uh, credentials, but also there's a, a sense of, of what is the expensive route financially. Yes. In the, so it's a bigger than purely sustainable. It is a quite, it's uh, sustainable and, and yes, we, we're also trying, because for most customers, that particularly the publishers, they're on a budget yeah. and different things cost different amounts. Mm -hmm. And um, so we are trying to provide the costings yeah, that yeah, associate yeah. with the, the relative choices people can make. Um, is there one single piece of guidance in the book that you would highlight as a sort of, killer most useful well thing. it really depends on what the goals are as i say if you wanted to reduce plastics i'd say go to the bindings coatings laminate section um but for indies for my experience they're usually on a budget mm -hmm. and i would say the most important thing is that sustainability doesn't have to cost any more um you don't have to to choose recycled paper which is you know tends to be more expensive mm -hmm. 30% more expensive. You can choose virgin FSC paper and um, it will have no cost implication for you, but it will still be sustainable. Sustainable in the sense it's been grown to it, be paper. It, it, and, it's been grown yeah. to be paper um, uh, and actually the paper industry has actually generated uh, an area the size of Switzerland in terms of new forests over about the last 20 years. And of course, that's capturing all the carbon mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. And 70% of, of paper is recycled in the UK. 
Is it? Yeah. 76% of the tonnage used of, of, is recycled. Of the used paper gets recycled. Gets recycled. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. When we started this conversation, you, you mentioned that you had a really, you know, it's been attracting new interest from potential new clients, yeah. etc. But what, what has the reaction been to it generally from, from existing clients, from people outside? Really positive, really yeah. positive. We've had 300 downloads of the book. And it's only been out for, well, less than a month, maybe three weeks. Mm -hmm. So 300 downloads already. Our clients have said, wow, you know, we've been waiting for this for a long time. You know, clients I've not heard from and prospects I've not heard from for two years mm -hmm. uh, have been back in touch and say, thank you very much. This is really useful. And in fact, we have a large organisation, one of the large international organisations contacted us earlier this week to say they want to come and have a visit. Great. Because they'd like to talk to us about how they can make their print more sustainable. And it's probably too early to tell, but I mean, have you seen any signs of, of customers making different decisions? Certainly one of the uh, decisions is often about lamination mm -hmm. because um, there, uh, there is a supposedly biodegradable laminate out in, out in the market, uh, but actually who puts a book on their compost heap to biodegrade. You don't, you put it in your recycling. So along with a normal laminate, it gets separated during the paper recycling process and burnt to create energy. But more customers, I think, are moving towards a coating. Mm -hmm. So a press coating rather than a laminate. So they're choosing to, to maybe cut out laminate altogether. So ID, for example, doesn't use a laminate on its cover. Whereas well, once it did, perhaps. Where, whereas yeah, yeah. once okay, it did. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, so you'd expect more decisions like that in the future, uh, 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 definite. Yes, yeah. we're certainly having far more discussions. Well, thank you very much for joining us and telling us a bit about about the book. I think it's a fantastic addition to, well, it's not even an addition, it's the first time anybody's done something like this. And I think it's a really important thing for people to pick up and make best use of. So yeah, and we're very happy. If people got any questions arising out of the book, you know, we're really happy to, sure. uh, to, to have sure. a chat. Just to emphasise then, it's available free online from your website. Yes, uh, but there is the print edition, which we have here at the Mag Culture Shop. You do? Yeah, yeah, great. Um, well, thank you again for joining us. It's a pleasure. Now, I mentioned earlier the return of our Mag Culture Meets evenings at the shop. We always try to present a mix of speakers, people from magazines about different subjects and at different stages in their development. Perhaps one of the lesser-known guests we've hosted this year was Jonathan Simons, founder of Small Hardback Analog C Review. He spoke very passionately about his beliefs around technology. Here's a brief excerpt that I hope might encourage you to listen to the rest via the Mag Culture Journal. We're not against technology. Uh, we're, we're, we're critical of the internet and we have a lot of things to say about that, but we're not against um, technology. I mean, technology is really like the right dose, like, it's like medicine, right? Like the right dose for the right mm -hmm. thing at the right time. Um, but we are interested in inspiring people for whom um, life is more than the screen. You know, people that, that use the screen but, but remain the, the master of it and, and, and don't become the slave of it. Um, and so these are people whose center of gravity, their sort of locus of self is still in the here and now. They haven't sort of like, um, you know, they haven't like actually immigrated to the internet. They don't have a sense of living in the cloud. And I will say, and, and, and I have the pleasure of meeting, especially some of my students, there are people for whom constant connectivity is a real thing. Um, in, in America, Pew Research does a lot of teen uh, internet technology research. And, and we're now up to about 60% of American teens are constantly connected. So their sense of self really very much is in this sort of cloud space or, you know, this notion of a metaverse. 
we're interested in, in, in inspiring people that are either on, on the fence, sort of questioning a digital lifestyle, or else people that, that, that still get into sort of the wilderness of life. And here I mean more than the literal wilderness of trees, but like people who actually um, don't want to be surveilled all the time, people that want to get lost, mm-hmm. um, as it were. Um, and, and, and analog printing, is, is all, these, these are objects of, of the wilderness. You can take them out of the marketplace and um, they won't track you. Mm-hmm. And you can steal them away into, into the woods or uh, in the middle of the ocean or whatever. And so the kinds of people that are willing to, to, to have a more immersive experience in life are the ones that tend to find our work inspiring. And, and another part of, of, of that same introduction, um, you, you speak very strongly about the ability to create in that environment and to cut yourself off yeah. and not be, not, not just influenced, but not be distracted. Right. Um, like everything, there's, 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 there's you know, sort of a, a dialectical reality to our relationship to technology. Can people make beautiful things with digital tools? Of course they can. Can we, can we read a novel on the internet? Of course we can. But do we want the internet and digital tools to mediate everything? And, and uh, what are the limitations, depending on different types of relationships between people and objects, are we talking about when we talk about digital mediation or the lack thereof? Um, so I think, you know, it just depends on what you're talking about, really, specifically. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is the time you, you oh, to, to, to okay. actually dive into one yeah, of those yeah, yeah. introductions. So they're, they're always very powerful and, yeah. and fascinating. So is this from the latest issue? Yeah, exactly. And just before I do it, I want to, um, well, you guys are all familiar, so I'll keep this short. But um, my introductions are, are always... Um, oriented around a critical perspective, uh, you know, on, on the internet, but our, our journals are not uh, internet criticism through and through. Um, my, my, my introductions are sort of like a trailhead that, that we then get on, get, you know, get over or get beyond. This question of like how to live a, a rich and meaningful life in the digital age, you know, it's, it's not about um, just complaining about the internet all the time. Like it's about getting beyond it and living, living uh, an immersive, uh, unmediated life. Um, despite that, my introductions are um, a little more directly um, speaking um, to these themes of internet criticism. So that said, I'll read a few paragraphs, and then we can, uh, we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, my piece is called Toward a New Renaissance. The question is no longer whether our future is digital, but to what degree we want it to remain human. The relentless march of technology into our lives brings not only marvelous innovation, but also palpable heaviness. The same screens which streamline our daily lives deluge us with global news and opinion. The same platforms through which we forge virtual bonds with those we love overwhelm us with outrage and advertising. And since paying close attention to turmoil is one of our most basic survival instincts, it's all too easy to lay ourselves open to the benumbing fear and fury of eight billion other people. The more our gadgets convince us that we are living through apocalyptic times, the more attracted we become to digital utopianism and its dulcet promises of optimization, fellowship, and ultimately virtual sustenance in a volatile world. Like a dentist pushing candy, the apps soothe the panic they engender. We tell ourselves, too, that the internet is a neutral mirror, reflecting the primordial good and evil of human nature. But there is little that is humane or natural in algorithmic selection. 
The composite picture of reality we glean from our devices is assembled not by civil servants or local priests, not according to moral imperatives or international treaties, not from serendipity or randomness, but as a result of automated intelligence shrewdly programmed to keep, to keep us hooked to the web. With our relationships and public fora now firmly rooted online, logging off can feel like a dismal blend of exile and social irresponsibility. Yet once we regard solitude or privacy as uncivil or counterproductive, we resign ourselves to the captivity of groupthink. As we become increasingly externalized, will we remember how to reach into those vital inner depths for the effervescence and eros we crave above all else? Will we preserve that crucial means of descent, the ability to liberate ourselves from stress and worry, to while away hours on the precipice of our own infinitudes? For if not from a lightness of being, an existential dose of wakefulness, where will we find the moral force needed to build lasting peace and solidarity? There comes a moment when a virtual life and its simulations prove unbearable, when we choose instead to disconnect and set out like wide-eyed poets for unchartered wilderness, for all those sublime and subtle hues that exist only in raw, unmediated life. Once enough of us come to realize precisely what we are losing, we may just find ourselves on the cusp of a new renaissance. Thank you. Yes. Uh, now, speaking personally, I find very little to argue with that. I Please have, do. But I'm, I'm more interested in sort of going back a stage. What was it you were doing that presumably you were you did have a digital footprint and you mm. were very in, yeah, beginning yeah. to engage with yeah, whichever yeah. doesn't yeah. matter what social media or whatever uh, but you but you pulled back was mm. there a particular mm. trigger to that was there or, or was it a, a, a long process or a sudden process it's a, a good question this is time for my confession okay yeah <laughs> um in in 2007 i was among other things um you know very interested in in uh, distributing my music and I was very excited about digital technology. I was quite a technologist. I, I did freelance graphic design and simple websites. I taught myself how to program FileMaker databases and, and made money that way. I was really quite in it. Mm -hmm. um, the confession is that I was one of these guys who um, waited in line, a very long line, outside of the, the, the Apple store in Portland for the iPhone number one. And uh, if, if, you don't, if you don't know the truth behind this, believe me when I tell you, when you're, when you're in such a line in front of the Apple store all around the world, and when you get let in, and you get invited to one of those um, fake, folksy wood tables uh, to, to buy your device, the Apple employees in unison clap for you. <laughs> they clap for you. So I was clapped for, good consumer. And I bought my iPhone and I loved it. And I, I became quite addicted to, mm -hmm. to the device. And, and I was really excited about all the, all the apps, and, and I was very much in it. And then I noticed at a certain point that it started to change the way I was thinking. I was also a person that did a lot of research and, and practice in Buddhism. I had uh, contemplative rituals in my life, uh, writing practice, and I drank a lot of tea, and, 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 and lived a pretty balanced life. But I noticed that it was changing uh, thing, you know, how my mind was working. And the, the best example among, among many is that I noticed that in the moments where there was nothing to optimize, my mind was like sort of wired or in, in, in a groove of optimization. And so leisure became 
um, very, very shallow for me, and, and I was having trouble reading books. Um, I would be trying to, you know, sort of on the edge of my seat, trying to optimize my leisure or, or, or uh, the, the, the time I was spending with friends and, 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 and such, and that frightened me. Uh, I felt like something had to change, and so when I moved to Europe 15 years ago, I didn't get a phone, another phone, and I haven't had one since. I have plenty of technology, and I am addicted to the internet, but um, I keep it tethered, mm -hmm. um, and, and I, I think I have a, a balance that works for me at this point. Uh, that's really interesting, because uh, so uh, uh, I should make a minor confession, just that we, we were chatting before this, and we were positing the idea that Maybe Jonathan has an Instagram page under a, a fake identity, uh, and maybe maybe you are uh, really busy still. But if you genuinely dumped it all, and I never maybe had, you weren't on Instagram. I never had social media. Uh, never, no, no, okay. I, I never had social media. Not even early Facebook. No, no, I never no, had social okay. media. But but I was absolutely enamored and addicted to my phone. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I was walking around like a zombie, you know, doing text messages and that kind of thing. Um, no, I never really got into social media. But again, I feel like I have lots of technology. And in our office in Freiburg, um, you know, I've programmed this elaborate database for us to organize everything. And we make good use of digital technology. And when I, when I occasionally consult other small presses and, and startup presses, you know, I'm always encouraging them to take a hybrid approach. Mm -hmm. So what I said to you earlier, I'll say again, like we're, 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 we're setting up certain conditions around our work uh, as an example, but not necessarily as a standard. You know, we're not trying to be dogmatic about it. We each have to approach these questions as publishers, as writers, as individuals uniquely. You know, you can't superimpose, you know, one approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and, we're, and as I wrote at the beginning of my piece, we're not going back. Mm -hmm. We're going much deeper. We're going much, much deeper into having a digital society. Hopefully here in England, we're not going in the direction uh, that, that China has gone. Mm -hmm. um, but we're, yeah, I mean, we could talk about that too. We're, we're going much deeper. So we each have to make some choices. So that's it for this episode. Thanks to all our guests, Kirsten Algera and Ernst van der Hoven from MacGuffin, Alison Branch from Park Communications, Jonathan Simons from Analog C Review. All that remains for me to thank you for listening. A huge thank you again to Park Communications for supporting this podcast. See you soon, maybe in New York. 